When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org, where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for Election Day. Headcount tours with musicians to help concert attendees register to vote, but you don't need to leave your house to register or to get voting info. Register to vote by visiting headcount.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of Mixtape Memories. Memories. I'm Matt Hart Spade. And I'm Jenners. We have another special guest uh, this time around, uh, Mona Dagan, Senior Director of Marketing at Mute Records, and she's also the founder of Mona Me Records. How are you doing, Mona? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, it's going to be a good episode. I haven't seen you in person in ages and ages, so this is a nice way to kind of catch up. Uh, in these crazy times. Seriously, such a treat to see both of your faces. So thank you. (laughs) I know. I feel like I only see people on the gram now. It's like the gram or Zoom. (laughs) It's dark. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Well, we met through like a mutual friend a long time ago because we both had a love of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) So. Yes. Um. A and love then, that still thrives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I saw that a bunch of, like, drag queens were in the Erasure video, the new Erasure video. Yes, the Nerves of Steel video. Did you um, have that's a hand new... in that? I wish. But I want to <laughs> say that I did kind of subconsciously because I talk about drag and drag race every week to the head of marketing in the UK who's the one that commissioned the video so I feel like I was just feeding him the inspiration subtly but I didn't do anything (laughs) well it came out great regardless (laughs) yeah yes yeah the director and producer Brad Hammer did an excellent job and like I thought all the queens did such a good job it's such an awesome array of talent in there so I was excited about it, too. Yeah. And I mean, we'll, we'll get further into erasure later in the episode. But um, I mean, it, it must be kind of a trip to like kind of just work with them for the last X amount of years. No, it is pretty insane. Like, I genuinely <laughs> feel like a child sometimes because I I've been a fan since but it sounds like I'm 
exaggerating, but no joke since I was eight years old because my sister was 10 years older than me and she kind of raised me. So she, like most of my childhood was spent in her car in the passenger seat just listening to her CDs and tapes and stuff and Erasure and Depeche and Yaz and like a bunch of those mute bands were all on repeat in her car and I just grew up like daydreaming to all those songs. So the fact that I get to work with them now is like an honors and understatement. Yeah, I bet. Um, speaking of your sister and childhood and whatnot, um, I was wondering if we could take it all the way back to those early tapes and, and rides in the car and kind of what you were drawn to before you fully were involved in the industry. Um, I remember my first actual mixtape was, it's funny because it was Louder Than Bombs, which is already like a compilation of Smith songs but I like remember distinctly like my pink handwriting on my tape and I put it in my own order but I didn't know the names of the songs so all the names were like la di la dao la di da dao or whatever (laughs) (laughs) um so I think that was my first mixtape and then as I got a little bit older like I would listen to the radio a lot when I was younger like alternative radio Mm -hmm. and just record so like the mixtapes were not very good because you'd miss like the first couple seconds of the Mm -hmm. song or like there'd be a voiceover or something at the end but like that that was another early version of mixtaping for me oh totally (laughs) i would love doing that it's the best you're just like waiting (laughs) for them to start but um i feel like i did that with like madonna and bobby brown (laughs) (laughs) so good i remember also doing that with um like videotapes like i guess video mixtapes like on 120 minutes Mm -hmm. oh yeah and you just wait for your favorite song to come on yeah i remember like um videotaping like pearl jam unplugged And then I was like in art class in high school and I would like try to draw Eddie Vedder, (laughs) like from a still. (laughs) Pause. (laughs) I would videotape the VMAs and then try and use it for my mixtapes as if I were like kind of hosting a radio show. So like if Jamiroquai, I know he won like all the awards one year for Virtual Insanity, I would take that audio and then pretend I was having an interview with Jamiroquai um, and then play like, you know, a radio cutoff version with the DJ's voice over it of the same song. It was really, really poorly constructed, but it was fun at the time. Yeah. That's really cute. I love that. <laughs> That's so cute. But it's funny you mentioned Louder Than Bombs because later in the episode we will get into Morrissey as well. But that was my first introduction to the Smiths when I was 18 was Louder Than Bombs. A friend had made me a mixtape and put on Half a Person and maybe Sheila Take a Bow. Um, so, yeah, that was also kind of my intro. I have a half a person story for you as okay. at some point, whenever is the time. Well, let's let's do a half a person story. Do Why it, not? Go. It's a throwback. Okay. It's from like what, 1985? <laughs> so yeah. I picture it like I'm like <laughs> Los Angeles, 2000. And uh, Morrissey was doing, I think, like a series of shows. I want to say at the Wiltern, but I can't remember where it was. But that was when I was following him on tour. 
And I was like, I'm 18. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm going to every single show. Mm -hmm. So I would just drive from city to city, park outside the venue, and then just sit in line all day and then wait to go in. Mm -hmm. And the, in L.A., the crowds were really rough. Like it was like the L.A. gang member, like Morrissey gang member. So it was like the boy racers versus mm -hmm. the so-and-so. I don't even know. But I hadn't eaten all day. It was very hot outside. So by the time I get in, I'm feeling not my best, I guess. And the crowds are really intense. Like they're pushing, they're screaming, like it's sweaty, so much energy. And uh, I want to say like four or five songs in, I start to feel like I'm losing it. Like I'm like, I can't handle this anymore. Mm. I was like in the second row. I couldn't even, I don't think I was even standing anymore. Like you're just being levitated. You're floating, by the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so security sees like she's going down. So they come to get me. They're pulling me out of the crowd. The crowd sees what's happening and is using my legs as leverage to get to Morrissey. Oh, so like the security wow. guards are pulling my arms. <laughs> the crowd is pulling my legs. That's scary as hell. I know. And Morrissey comes over and he's doing half a person and he comes to get me and like puts his hand out to me and is singing half a person into my eyeballs <laughs> as I'm like spinning upside down and like all around oh while the God. crowd is trying to like get me to get to him. He final finally like gets me loose. Security like rushes me off and throws me to the back of the venue and I like, like, what just happened? And Morrissey finishes the song and he's like, see, I can save everyone except myself. <laughs> that is a good one. Oh my God, that's such a good story. And that's my story for you. Wow. Wow. That's a good one. You can I stay. love that you were following him around the country. I was so into him, like so into him. He represented everything mm -hmm. to me as like someone growing up in a small town where like there was no counterculture. There was like no, like I didn't really see gay people. I didn't really see like culture in the sense of like literary stuff or like, I don't know, just all these things that he introduced to my life that were really important to me. And like my first tattoos were Girl Afraid, like the Smiths mm -hmm. were everything to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. So... Yeah, when I was like 18, I was like, I'm going. <laughs> and which tour was that? Like that around was, what album? It was the Maz Angelus album. Do you remember where he was doing like the, he was like doing, um, he was dressing like Elvis, like the yes. 68 comeback Elvis. Yes. But I can't remember what album it was for. I think it was after You Are the Quarry. Oh, you're right. There was a string of albums after You Are yeah. the Quarry. Yeah. I feel like it was maybe like a best of around You Are the Quarry, mm -hmm, I want to mm -hmm. say. Yeah. I don't know. I always wished I would follow him around, but I just kind of always saw the local shows. Uh, and then sometimes I'd go to Philly or go upstate, you know. Well, I saw yeah. your, your show number, and I was like, that's pretty good. But well, you know what's vote. funny? So I've seen 24. <laughs> we'll talk about Morrissey for a second, and then we'll, then we'll escape and come back. But, um, yeah, so I've seen 24 Morrissey shows, but I feel like whenever I'm at a Morrissey show, uh, the people in front of me are telling me that their tally is, like, 114, and I feel like, what am I even doing here, you know? <laughs> I literally stopped keeping count because of that, because I was like, I give up. I'm never going to meet all these like meet their levels so I'm at like 40 something but uh -huh. like same thing like you go to these shows and they're like 97,000 times 
it's like, damn, like then you're really devoting your life, you know, to someone. And Jin and I have talked multiple times on the podcast about Stan culture and like, I don't know. I feel like maybe it's easier when you're younger, but the older you get, it's just kind of a pain in the ass. Like now at this age, I can't imagine like following any act around every city. I mean, you'd have to like, your whole life would be different. You know, I guess you'd have to be independently wealthy and all sorts of things. How did you like transition from like, you know, being a fan, going to the concerts to like more like working in the music industry? Um, From volunteering at my college radio station, actually. Um, I started there when I was 18 or so. And then I feel like when you're that age, you just start starting to find your tribe. And that that felt very much like my tribe. It was like a bunch of nerds, a bunch of people into music. Um, They were the kind of weirdos at school. So I felt like that was where I wanted to spend all my extra time. And so through college radio, I ended up... um, moving to England to get my master's in radio because I loved it so much. I was Mm -hmm. like, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, I mean, master's in radio, I don't know how useful that was for it, but in a a weird way it was because it ended up leading me to working at Six Music over there and working at BBC London. And then that led me to getting a job back managing the college radio station I volunteered at. So then after that, I ended up getting um, offered the job at Sub Pop to head their radio promotions department. So radio in a weird way ended up becoming my stepping stone into the industry. Were you ever like a DJ on the radio station? Yes. Okay. I was Mona That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I learned how to DJ actually was through Calyx. Yeah. I love uh, that you also, on top of like everything else you do, throw DJ parties with like cool music themes, not like your usual dance party. So you're keeping uh-huh. that like tradition alive of like cool dance parties. Cause I don't think you see that anymore. Like it was all over the place in the aughts, I feel like. But yeah, there are what, fewer now, I feel, especially to cater to things that we would actually want to dance to. Yeah. Totally. You know? It's actually hard because there's not as much of a crowd for it as you would think there would be, or maybe I'm just a poor promoter, <laughs> but like <laughs> it's hard. Cause I think a lot of the people that are into that are our age. There's yeah. a lot more like other things you'd want to be doing probably like Netflixing or whatever, you know, going to a show or something. So, I mean, the competition is stiff, but at the same time, like I liked it. I, I don't need like 300 people in a room to feel good about yeah. it. Like I'm yeah, yeah. stoked if there's 20 kids there, kids. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I, I feel you. Cause like, I was just telling Matt, like before we started this, like, I was like, I always want to go to Mona's parties, but then I'm just like, so lame. Well, we get old and lazy. You know? I'm the same. I'm the same. But also I feel like, I don't know. There's, I wonder how it's going to be after all this. Like, do you think people are going to feel the same? Are we going to like want to go out more? Am I never going out again? In in my opinion, I think, listen, we're kind of in this boat and we'll be in this boat for quite some time. But I do feel like once things are 100% safe, like let's say it's summer or fall of next year, I think there is going to be such a hunger for people to go out and experience something in a live way and never be on Zoom ever again, you know, unless you kind of have to be. So I do think it'll come back. It's just, it'll be a bit. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, we're going to need like a vaccine, you know, yeah. like some kind of guarantee that you can get better 
and you probably won't die <laughs> like if you get it I mean, 99.9 <laughs> little things to ask when you're going yeah. out exactly <laughs> so like how was it working at sub pop and then kind of you know moving on from there because then you went to Domino, no? Yes. Okay. So, so Sub Pop was my first label job. And that was amazing in the sense of, like, getting to work with these legends like Jonathan Poneman and Megan Jasper and, like, just the history of Sub Pop. And I was there at the 20th anniversary, so that was an amazing year to be there because we did that big festival. Mm -hmm. And there was, like, a party at the top of the Space Needle, and they flew the Sub Pop flag. And so I just felt really honored to be a part of that experience. But I think the time was not a good time for me to be living or moving to Seattle as a single person. Like, yeah. I didn't know anybody. I didn't really have any friends. I didn't – the people that worked at the label were all older or established, so they were not interested in going out all the time. And, like, I just felt super lonely in Seattle. So I left after a year and moved to New York and um, worked at Domino. So that's mm -hmm. where that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, which was amazing, which is like the counter opposite of the experience I had in Seattle where like I felt like the city really – New York is one of those places that can open its arms to you that I think that some cities don't. Like I think Seattle and London were a little harder to assimilate into or, or feel comfortable. I don't know if I ever felt super comfortable in either, but New York I felt like really opened its arms to me. Like I met friends right away. I met – like I found – places I wanted to go it just felt really welcoming so that's why I'm still here <laughs> what year around was that when you 2008 oh nice okay. yeah yeah I remember that year <laughs> yeah. it, it still was cool like it was fun to go out that year like you know even though it was like the ending of the aughts I guess but like you know things were still happening I was less in Williamsburg I think at that time and more in like starting to South Slope or South Brooklyn, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which, like, I never thought would happen. That's weird. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I always, like, thought, like, working for somebody like Sub Pop would be, like, one of those dream boxes that you just, like, tick off, you know? It definitely was in a lot of ways. But I think yeah. that that's also the the weird thing of if it's all time and place. Like, I feel like if I had moved there now – I probably yeah. would still be there, where, but I was 23 at the time, and I was like, let's rage. Nobody yeah. wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I worked at, like, a booking agency that they, like, ended up partnering with um, at one point. That was my little thrill. I was like, I kind of work for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What was the agency? Inland Empire. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And then through that, I met uh, Jonathan Poneman and, like, Megan Jasper, and I was just like... I can't believe this. <laughs> They're the like, coolest people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And um, exactly like how everyone says they are. Just like cool and chill and just like pleasant to be around. Yeah. Uh, at what point did you kind of decide to start your own label? Seek out acts and, and put stuff out digitally and physically? That was not too long after I moved to New York, mm -hmm. um, there was a band I was friends with from San Francisco called Magic Bullets. Mm -hmm. And I think it was 2009. And I was like trying to help them find a label deal because I really believed in them. They sounded like the Smiths kind of or like the 80s altered yeah. images kind of vibe. Um, and nobody would sign them. So I was like, 
why don't I start a record label and just put it out? And that would be a fun way for me to like have creative control over everything. And I was doing, I was the communications manager at Domino then. So I was doing radio and press. Mm -hmm. So I was doing radio and press for my own label too. And like, it was awesome. We got like pitchfork reviews and WFUV sessions and like all these cool things that I felt really proud of. Cause I was like, mm -hmm. it was all me. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a really exciting thing. And I think it's still like that for me. Like it's an outlet where I can take mm -hmm. complete yeah. ownership creatively and also like feel that like yeah. it was 100% me. And it's still a one woman operation, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it has not grown in the last 10 years. But you did just release like this amazing compilation that um, benefits Alzheimer's Association um, called The Longest Day. And uh, that was kind of like your modern mixtape. I know that like your father has been going through the disease. Like, was this kind of like a healing a way to heal for you? Yeah, I mean, the ironic thing is that, well, I don't know if it's ironic, but the interesting thing is that my dad actually was the one that loaned me the money Aww. to start my record label. And um, it, through the label is like how I got to save money that ended up being able to help him when we were like in financial crisis. Cause it, when we discovered he had dementia a year ago, hit all his bank accounts had been wiped. Like there were liens on his properties and whatever. So like, that was amazing that I was able to use the tool that he had given me to wow. like help him back yeah. in the end. But, um, so yeah, that's what this compilation is about. Um, it's comes out physically October yeah. 1st it's out digitally right now but it's for the longest day which is Al the Alzheimer's Association's yearly fundraiser um mm -hmm. fundraising incentive and I just last year I'd done like a long DJ set and raised three thousand dollars and I was like why don't I put out a compilation this year and see if I can like get some more money and which is great because so far we've already raised sixty five hundred dollars for the Alzheimer's That's Association so and it was it was absolutely a healing process. It's funny because it's not even about the money. Like for me, in the end, it ended up being this tool over the last year that I could think of that wasn't negative that was really related to Alzheimer's. It was something positive that I could actually make yeah. a, a change or do something. And one of the things that I did for the pre-order is that if you pre-ordered the physical, you could have a name of a loved one put into the artwork. And weirdly seeing all the names come in ended up being a very therapeutic thing for me yeah. too. And just, you know, I never thought of that, you know, when they're like, say their name or the, how, how really, really impactful it is to have a, an actual person attached mm -hmm. to these big concepts or like, and how less alone I felt through it. And I hope that's how people feel when they get the product. We were wondering also specifically about your memories of the aughts, I guess, while you were at Domino and when you moved to New York, just kind of going out and what kind of things you saw and what were some of your like key memories as it relates to live music and DJ sets and stumbling around the city and whatnot. I will be honest, I remember more of the aughts mm -hmm. in San Francisco because I think I, uh -huh. my brain was younger and I was like in college and I remember going to pop scene and like seeing all the bands that were around there like 
the Walkman playing tiny venues or like, do you remember Elephant with an F? Of course. (laughs) They were a big block band. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that guy being like, I would make you pregnant with this next song. (laughs) (laughs) Like, um, I will like never forget that stage banter. But yeah, I feel like the hot, hot, he and like, I don't know, Electro Clash and all those fun things. I have very vivid memories of the Bay Area. And I feel Mm -hmm. like in New York, I'm ashamed to say it, my memory is, like, gone. And I think it's maybe because the drinking time was extended till four. So, like, yep, yes, I don't know what happened. We've talked about this on the podcast. I think, (laughs) unfortunately, a lot of memories have gone away. (laughs) There's, like, have you seen that NME thing where it's, like, uh, they quiz artists on like their past to see how much they remember to see how much is gone from like drugs and rock and roll, whatever. I would have oh, wow. zero memory. I would have like a zero <laughs> out of zero on that one. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I'm going to Google it. Yeah. I'm going to look also. <laughs> <laughs> like people have been like, remember that time? I was like, no, I wasn't there. They'll be like, here's a picture of you standing next to me at this thing. And I'm like, I don't think I was there. <laughs> But you know what? It, it makes it was you know Jen and I talk about this a bunch. It was just part of the culture. It was like hand in hand. You'd check out the band. You'd have a drink. You'd talk to the publicist, the manager, the band maybe, and then on to the second act. And next thing you know, it's one in the morning, and you've had five drinks, and you're having a good old time. But you don't remember the details. They get fuzzy. Totally. Yeah. Especially if like there's free drinks. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There was a lot of free drinks back then. And I remember there, th- what you were saying about like going from place to place. Mm-hmm. That's what I loved about New York is it wasn't like California where like you go to one place mm-hmm. and maybe a second, like for an after party. I feel like New York, you were like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> like I'm going to see seven exactly. shows. I'm going to this thing. My friend's DJing the after party. Like, so yeah, it's no wonder. Like, how are we to remember exactly. all these details? I feel like for me, it was even worse when I'd go to Austin, which I haven't been to South by in quite some time. But I feel like Austin, speaking of like open bars and running around from show to show, it just became a complete blur after a while. And plus your day gets started so early and ends so late. And then you're just kind of all week. You're like a zombie. My feet, like Mm -hmm. once you get them out in Austin, I feel like they're not going back into those shoes. Like they're so, so like huge elephant feet at the end of the night. Oh, I remember yeah. that feeling. I was one of those that didn't know, like, what South by was all about. And I went, you know, my job sent me there. And, like, I was like, oh, I'll just wear heels. <laughs> wow. And then quickly found out that's not what you do there. It's, like, all commerce. <laughs> that is amazing. Good yeah, lesson, like- though. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mona... Correct me if I'm wrong. You grew up in Reno, Nevada, or no? Correct. Okay. Was there much of a scene there back in the day? I mean, here's the thing. I didn't really get to leave the house a whole lot when I was little. Like, my parents were very conservative immigrant parents, so they were like, it's the devil's plaything out there. Like, (laughs) you stay inside. So, probably. I don't know, though. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was little... um, I want to say like Switchblade Symphony was the only band that came to Reno to play, which is crazy because they're like a not very big goth band. But yeah. um, oh, Orgy played once too. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's a throwback. <laughs> I'm the same. I mean, my parents never let me out uh, ever, so uh, I I didn't have any. Um, 
freedom until I went to college. Right? Did you go nuts in college? Because that's oh, totally. what I did. <laughs> yeah. I think all of us are in that boat to some degree. Yeah. But what's frustrating for me is that when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, I would be one of these people who would listen to alternative radio constantly. I'd call the number, win all the concert tickets, and then they'd come in the mail and I didn't get to go to any of them. Aww. And I'm like, but mom, I need to see Mighty Mighty Boston's. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you're not going to Irving Plaza, you know? <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. I was That's... like, uh, I think I saw Cherry Pop and Daddy's when I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I just snorted. I know. Well, they're <laughs> worth a snort. That was, yeah. <laughs> I remember when people swing dance. Oh, that, was, that was a moment. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh my, can I tie this weirdly back into Morrissey? Because when I saw Morrissey on Broadway, I met this woman who's very sweet, but she was telling me that her favorite band is Squirrel Nut Zippers. <laughs> How is that possible? That's insane. They were and like maybe the least offensive. I guess. <laughs> That's insane, though. I know. In but didn't nice Andrew way. Bird come out of there? Or am I dreaming this? Possibly. He might have been a Squirrel Nut Zipper. I have to check. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> He's all sorts of animals. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, I feel like I was gonna say something about that, and then I got distracted by the swing memories, and I like (laughs) it was such a weird time. It was was so weird. And yeah, there was a moment when I was listening to all this alternative music and, you know, my parents would be like, oh, my God, this Soundgarden thing is terrible or whatever I was listening to. But then once swing became a thing and like it became sort of for a moment like top 40, my parents were like, oh, this is kind of cool. This is fun. It's like, like, I never need to listen to Brian Setzer or whatever his name is ever in my life. You know. Such a crazy tangent, sorry. <laughs> that was amazing. I just have like a flood of memories. <laughs> oh, oh my Jesus. god. I, well, you know, those were like my first concerts, like whatever the NYU program board put together, you know, for us freshmen. That's you know? awesome though. I mean, like, that's what I was going to say is that um, my mom didn't really let me leave the house, but then weirdly would let me go to shows in the Bay Area because my sister lived there. So okay. they, she'd be like, oh, you can go visit her. And so I would see like Depeche or Susie or these crazy shows when I was like 12, 13. But that's like I cool. wasn't allowed to go to the mall. Like, yeah. <laughs> but I'll take it. Totally. Oh, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for me, it was also like college when I really kind of broke through and started seeing all these shows on my own. Because before that, like from the ages of, you know, early teens to 17, 18, it was a very limited group. Like I saw Alanis and and Radiohead at Jones Beach and my parents went with me and my brother, which is actually a sweet memory. But like other than that, it's I saw Sting with my dad. (laughs) Um, It's that not too much else. Yeah. That's awesome, though. I like that you went to shows with your family. Yeah, yeah. What was your first show? My first one was Alanis and Radiohead. Yeah, Jagged Little Pill Tour, that album meant the world to me. And Radiohead was on the Benz Tour. So, yeah. That's a very cool tour. It was nutty, yeah. Yeah. What was yours, Jen? My first concert. I always like to say Stereo Lab, but that was like 
during college. <laughs> <laughs> That's also very cool if that was your Yeah, first. that is a very cool one. I'm trying to think, like, what the pro- what the first program board con- – like, the first concert I ever, like, went to because I wanted to see them was Stereolab, Dots and Loops. It was weird because, like, I love that album, but they were very, like, boring to watch live. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst. Yeah. And I was just kind of like – yeah but i didn't really know like i didn't really know what going to shows was like really Mm -hmm. you know but uh yeah i mean new york going to school in new york is like crazy town (laughs) i'm so jealous i feel like it must have been amazing (laughs) i was just like telling um some cousins uh that like because uh, you know their kids are like going to college and I, I was just and they're like oh you know you're not gonna have much to do because there's nothing around there but you know you'll have time to study and I was like study <laughs> like <laughs> with studies in college it's <laughs> like, a negative I was like maybe like the first semester I did because I was still like reeling from being like that like study 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 girl in mm-hmm. high school but like after like a couple months in the city you're just there's so many distractions you know of course no i was i was in uh university of maryland college park which was kind of between dc and baltimore but essentially like it was the campus and then very little else you know huge (laughs) campus and um yeah but i remember their booking in terms of like who would come on campus and perform uh it was pretty atrocious now that i think about it they had fuel they had Jimmy's Chicken Shack. They had Bloodhound Gang. It was awful. Howie Day. Uh, and I went to all of them because it was free and it was right there. You yeah. Know. I did see Liz Fair. Oh, that's cool. They uh, programmed her. <laughs> that's awesome. It was a little bit cooler than yours, Matt. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had really terrible booking. You know, they did have one thing at University of Maryland that was cool. They had um, George Clinton play once. Oh, that was okay. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, legend. Yeah. I'm trying to think if we had anybody cool play Berkeley, but I don't remember, like, not even one. But my first concert was New Kids on the Block. Oh, okay, well, shit. that's legendary, though. <laughs> <laughs> like, hanging tough? Or? <laughs> um, I don't even know. That must have been, what was the, like, light purple one? With, like, they're sitting on the steps. Oh, I can't remember. Step by step, know. hanging tough. I don't Probably remember. Probably step by step if they're sitting yeah. on the steps. Let's. Yeah. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Who was your favorite? Obviously, Jonathan. No, 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 no. Oh. Jordan. 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 Yeah. Jordan was, <laughs> was mine like, too. obviously. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Jonathan's like the librarian. I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> He's like the one nobody. Well, Danny. Maybe Dan. There was a guy. I don't yeah, know. Danny. Nobody Danny likes had Danny. A- yeah, I'm not going to be mean, but Danny wasn't anyone's favorite. No. Yeah. I don't. I was suspicious of the people that like Joey. Are you guys one of them? <laughs> I was a Joey. <laughs> Jin was a Joey fan. I mean, he's so young looking. You guys. He, had, he aged I very had well. I poster. <laughs> you like pan the camera and there it is. <laughs> oh my God. That'd be so creepy if I saw it. <laughs> No, but you know what's so funny is that, like, I know I was a overweight queer kid, and I had this gigantic new kids on the block button, and it was, I'm pretty sure it wasn't even the whole band, it was just Jordan, <laughs> and it was like, it was like the size of a plate almost, and it was like, I would wear it every day on my jean jacket, oh and I think I was so cool. Oh my God, Matt, yeah. we would have been best friends. <laughs> I know. 
You're speaking my language. <laughs> yeah, but I know my cousins got to see New Kids, and I was super jealous. But at the time, like, I feel like there were just certain gender norms. Like, the boys don't see New Kids on the block. Mm. That's what the girls go to with their mom and, you know, whatever. But, like, the boys didn't go to that. So it was one of those things. It's funny because I went with my older sister, the one that, like, taught me about music and everything. And she's gay. And she used to have very, very short hair in high school. And I was, like, um, really into Miss Piggy. So I would wear pink all the time. And people would always ask if we were boyfriend, girlfriend, which would, like, really make me uncomfortable and her uncomfortable and like or be like are you guys brother sister you boyfriend girlfriend or whatever and it's like I just remember like it's funny when you say like oh what wasn't that's not what boys did is go to new kids because I feel like now thank god I hope that little boys wouldn't think twice about doing something like that and like I feel like you would hope that like young girls don't have to like be made to feel ashamed for having short hair or like that they're doing something wrong or something but like mm-hmm. um i was thinking that about a, that a lot lately because i went to reno and i was like oh there's just like so many bad memories of like people not minding their own business mm-hmm. in yeah. small towns <laughs> and just like making comments and stuff so i think on the whole it's better now um, yeah if i were to kind of generalize because i feel like at least in terms of everything under the LGBTQ umbrella, I feel like young kids now, particularly kids under 25, maybe under 21, they're a lot more, um, I feel like the shackles are kind of gone. You know, I think growing up as a, as a queer kid and a teenager in the nineties and stuff, it was like kind of, I don't know, you couldn't have been as open now, but now you see like, you know, 15 year old queer kids that are just embracing it and, and, posting photos of themselves and they're very proud and I think that's great you know I think there's been some progress is what I'm trying to say over the last 20 years as it relates to queer kids I mean if I ever wanted kids I would want them to be LGBTQ oh my god please yeah like I would like that's if I same thing if I ever wanted kids I would pray yeah but I feel like that's also again a generalization because I'm not hanging out with 14 year old so I'm not sure but I feel like from friends that have kids that um queer culture or even gender fluidity is such a sign of alternative culture whereas like we used to like dye our hair pink now um using different pronouns is like a a sign of asserting your uniqueness or your Mm -hmm. otherness or something which I love because I feel like that was far too radical for when I was growing up Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I think there's too many um, limitations that people were putting on themselves before and now they're more open and, you know, as far as I can see, I mean, you know, I think there's still conservative people out there, but overall, I think we're a little bit more open and I hope it continues. Yeah. Should we hop into repeat skip? Yes. Okay, so the first album we're going to talk about today um, is Morrissey's 1997 album, Maladjusted. I have a lot of thoughts on, but um, I just say that uh, I feel like in terms of critical acclaim, it was like, it was kind of lukewarm. I feel like some some reviewers are into it, but I think 
it, it got ignored to some degree. And then once he disappeared for a few years after this and put out You're the Quarry, that was kind of considered like the big comeback album. And I feel like Maladjusted kind of sometimes gets forgotten about. Um, but I mean, I still think there are some really strong moments on this album. Um, it's not my favorite Morrissey record. So what do y'all think? For me, Maladjusted it has a special place in my heart because that was the first tour that I ever saw him live. Mm-hmm. And I remember when he it, he played the Warfield. My sister and I drove from Reno to San Francisco and listened to Maladjusted the whole way through, like mm-hmm. a million times going there. And I remember when he came on stage, I screamed so hard. My sides hurt. Like I was like, <laughs> you know when you see the Beatles girls and you're like, how is that real? I feel like that was actually me. I was so excited. Um, But you're right. Like the album is certainly not his strongest out of his solo or Smith's career. Mm -hmm. But there's Mm -hmm. definitely some excellent songs on it. Mm -hmm. Jen, do you have memories of this record? No, I don't really have a lot of Morrissey memories, to be honest. Like I feel like um, I saw him on MTV. That was the first time I ever seen, like had heard of him. Because I, you know, I just didn't like listen to uh, a lot of Britpop back then um and uh yeah I don't know and then I was like who is this guy that everyone's like freaking out over like everybody was like he's the Beatles or something you know it was totally like that you know I just didn't like really like live with this album but listening to it to you know for this episode I I realized I knew more songs than I thought I would Mm -hmm. you know and um yeah and i'm my likes were probably the hits or whatever on the album well i think the singles from this release are really strong actually um uh particularly alma matters i feel like i've seen morrissey so many times and almost every single time at least in the last 15 years he does that song and i never really tire of it and um i don't know why that's one of those songs that like hits me in a way that i can't really uh, fully described, but um, it, may, it still makes me emotional. So I'll never tire of that song, and I'll probably never tire of the title track. Um, and then I feel like as the album progresses, I he loses me a little bit in certain spots. Mona? Yeah. Um, I would, well, same songs, but also I'm going to throw in Trouble Loves Me because I mm-hmm. feel like that is such a, like, emotional song for me for some mm-hmm. reason yeah. um but same thing towards the end of the album is stinky town <laughs> <laughs> sorrow will come to you in the end i remember the first time i heard it where it's like lawyer liar i'm like okay <laughs> all right gay it's, it's it's really a lot yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> For me, I just feel like when, when you know, on on um, Vauxhall and I, when he put out, uh, obviously it was a huge single for him, uh, The More You Ignore Me, which I feel like kind of um, deals with the same uh, topic of him just being pissed about the Smiths royalties and whatnot. So I would have thought that he would like put it behind him and not put out another track that was kind of this dig, but he holds a grudge. <laughs> yeah. That'll be on his epitaph. Yeah, he exactly. holds a grudge. <laughs> I just love it because, like, um, the lyrics, um, don't close your eyes, don't ever close your eyes. A man who slits throats has time on his hands and I'm going to get you. <laughs> and then when um, Joyce was asked, Mike Joyce was asked about, like, what he thought of that because that was, like, 
basically directed towards him. He just said, I found it funny. If Lemmy had written it, I might be concerned. <laughs> like, and it was just like, yeah, you're not scared of Morrissey. <laughs> no, no. Like, that guy's not hurting anybody. No. No. You know, in the end, you know, Mike Joyce won and got his fair share of royalties. I don't know why people get so bitter about stuff like that. It happens to a lot of bands. I feel like, I don't know, can we talk about this on the show? Like, what Morrissey's become and what that has done to our <laughs> fandom? Or is that, mm. like, too broad a topic for this, yeah. for today? <laughs> I think we could touch upon it quickly. I mean, I never really discussed personally, like kind of how I disassociated myself, but it's not a very long story. It's just kind of like, listen, we all know he's been problematic for a while, but I feel like I've personally have kind of made excuses for it or brushed it aside. And then, you know, the last time I saw him, I went to four shows out of the seven on the Broadway run in um, May of uh, 2019. And then during that week, he performed on Fallon with the, with the uh, the for Britain, you know, alt-right pin. And I mean, he's just said so many terrible things the last couple of years as it relates to a million different topics, but particularly like anti-immigrant. And I just, I don't know, at a certain point, it's just like, it, it becomes like exhausting to defend him and he's not worth defending. And it's like, I don't know, it can be kind of like toxic or something. And for me, uh, and the last thing I'll say is that like, he has meant so much to me and changed my life for, you know, 20 something years uh, that I'm okay actually like kind of not listening to anything new starting, you know, starting a few months ago. Like I have no interest in like ever giving him any more of my money personally. But those songs, you know, Smith songs and Morrissey solo songs through the last album uh, will forever mean so much to me and, and really help me navigate a, a whole range of circumstances. So that's my two cents. Oh, so eloquent. I feel like really <laughs> sums up a lot of how fans are feeling. Like, I feel like I did listen to the new album that he put out this year and it's actually great, but mm -hmm. I have, I listened to it once and just never felt inspired to go back to it because of the same thing. Like I've lost my faith in the human. And I think that that was, uh, and you're right. Like, I think I did make excuses for so long because it, the rest of what he did meant so much to me. Like, I feel like he was a voice for that. Not, I don't know of any other artists that were like touting asexuality or like, uh, just, I don't know, that kind of androgyny or nerdy culture. Or, like, I don't know, just so many things that I feel like he made it okay to talk about depression and, and kind of heavy topics that I'll never forget and I'll always hold so dear to my heart those albums and even mm -hmm. the iconography of old Morrissey but um yeah I don't really have a lot of time for him anymore which is kind of sad yeah it makes me sad too actually most of the time if I find out something about like a celebrity or an artist it ruins them for me and but I do think I agree with you guys where like listening to this album, all the songs that really like I recognized, I was like, it felt good. It still felt good to like mm -hmm. listen to it. Whereas like, say like Michael Jack, I can't listen to Michael Jackson anymore. No, like <laughs> no. After watching that documentary, like, yeah, I can't. I can't ever really listen to him. It's like different, you know, and maybe it's just because 
you know, what he's saying in, in, you know, the politics right now is not really that related to, you know, like his lyrics and songs and whatnot from the past that we all like hold so dear. But, you know, whereas like when I listen to Michael Jackson, I'm like, oh, that lyric is so gross now. Mm -hmm, (laughs) (laughs) I just can't. For me, it's kind of a mindfuck with Morrissey because I feel like so much of what he represented with the Smiths and for most of his solo career was kind of uh, standing up for people and like uh, go, you know, um, embracing kind of your individuality. And now it's just kind of I feel like he's abandoned so much of what he stood for. And that's like I when I think of early Smith singles, I think of like him standing up for the working class and whatnot. And now it's like he's aligning himself with this crap. I I don't know. It it throws me. I almost wonder if it's like trolling or something, but regardless, I feel like that there's less tolerance today for that. I feel like I think about that a lot with other artistic movements or artists that kind of prided themselves on trolling, like the kind of, um, I want to say like a Boyd Rice or something like that, where you're like, if your, your whole thing is challenging the way people think, I don't want to be challenged today. I just want to know you're on my side and you're not going to be standing for terrible things. Like there's too much going on right now for me to enjoy this artistic challenge. Yeah. Um, It feels too serious. Totally. Agreed. One other song I just want to mention that I love from this album that is towards the end, or I believe it's the last track, is Satan Rejected My Soul. I feel like if I'm ever at a bar and they have this album, this is the one I want to play for some reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, otherwise I would probably pick Alma Matters and Maladjusted and then probably skip He Cried. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Mona. I really like Alma Matters and um, Trouble Loves Me as well. And for very, you know, all the same reasons. And I would definitely skip Sorrow. Oh, yeah, Sorrow needs to be skipped also. (laughs) Also, I didn't really like Roy's Keen. I don't know. Yeah, I'll give you that one, too. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I find interesting is that this album came out, like, in his autobiography, he admitted that he had this relationship with a photographer named Jake Walters in the mid-'90s. And I assume that this album was recorded as it was ending. So maybe that also... I don't know. There's like sort of a bitter tone in some of the songs. It could be because of the breakup. I don't know exactly, but mm. it's interesting the timing because I feel like well, Southpaw grammar is its own thing. But like I feel like uh, Vauxhall and I is a little um, like there's some love on that record, and I feel like there's not a lot of love on this release. It's a little darker. Very dark. But also, can we talk about how you got through the autobiography? Like, oh my god, I would consider myself a huge fan, and I got through page 50 where he's still eight years old. (laughs) It was a journey, it was a journey, and um, I actually couldn't wait till it got to the US, so I ordered it from the UK and like paid for a ridiculous amount of shipping, and and I got it like you know as early as I could humanly get it. You know, that there are no chapter, well, you know, there are no (laughs) chapter breakdowns, and there's no like paragraph spacing, everything is just like one thing. It's a nightmare, Um, it's really a nightmare, and uh, listen, uh, it's like, I don't even know, like four or 500 pages. But for me, what was wild and kind of tying back to this album and Sorrow Will Come in the End, I'm not kidding. I think the, the, the mid-90s situation with the lawsuit and the Smiths and the royalties was literally like 85 pages. And I'm like, can we please move on? Nobody needs to read 85 pages of, of that, you know? 
Yeah, it's nobody cares about uh, copyright and percentages. <laughs> it was not sexy at I all. I think 20 pages was just listing everything he heard on the radio from age <laughs> five to seven, which I like made a playlist of. And then I was like exhausting myself reading this thing. And I was like, I can't. I give up. She's done. Yeah, I'll never read it again. <laughs> Shall we pop into the second album, which is a lot more light? <laughs> yeah, totally different. Uh, okay, it's Erasure's Chorus, which was put out in 1991. This is a fun album. Ugh, I'm obsessed. Yeah. It was super fun. I actually loved, um, like, almost all of it. It was hard to pick a skip, actually, for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, I picked the obvious one, Love to Hate You. Yeah, um, I think it seems like we all kind of are on the same page. That's just such an incredible single. Yeah. That yeah. video, too. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but where he's like, cha cha, pata beret, down the like catwalk yeah, yeah. and stopping with the water. And like, oh, yeah. I love it. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, oh, this song is so, like, I know this part. It's so well known. And then I was like, oh, it's I Will Survive. <laughs> it's being sampled in the song. I forgot about that. I never caught that, actually. I was just like, I was like talking to Ryan, like, Oh, everybody knows this part of the song. (laughs) When I was like reading about it, I was like, I will survive. Oh, duh. You just blew my mind. So how did they afford that? (laughs) No disrespect to them. I mean, I'm sure they're very rich. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. I think they were on the same label, maybe. Maybe I think they've been on on mute for most of, I think their entire catalog but um mute actually was bought by bmg for a while so i think there was probably a lot more money in the 90s and then daniel rebought mute um as an independent label i want to say in like 2000 or so so like we don't have all that catalog still on mute but it still says mute records which is the bmg company but our mute is doesn't say records afterwards Okay. Just you know, I've always noticed that, but didn't know the reasoning. Okay. Sorry, that was really boring minutia. No, <laughs> no, that's good to know. This is like trivia hour right now. <laughs> um, I just want to say that, like, I remember this um, gay 80s dance party I used to go to in the aughts, um, maybe like in 03, 04. It was at Pyramid Club. Um, and it was called 1984, and pretty much they didn't even have a live DJ. They would just play the same 20 songs on a loop <laughs> every single week. Um, and one of them was Love to Hate You, and then Ola Moore was on there also. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just have memories of, like, getting my groove on and going home with someone and, like, just kind of <laughs> – I don't know. It's, it's happy, happy, drunken, early 20s memories. Totally. Yeah. The B-side of Love to Hate You is a track called La La La. That is, like, one of the greatest. I even pulled out the, like, CD single because I was so excited about it. But I was, like, memories. (laughs) Um, I love that. I think they just reissued it in the U.K., but I don't see it digitally in the U.S. But if you can find La 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 and Vitamin C or the B-sides to the Love to Hate You single, chef's kiss. Okay. (laughs) I love that you have that, of course. (laughs) yeah no i mean this was like their disco album kind of i'll be nerdy and like look shit up about the album and um i realized like uh the album covers for like their 
partly their MRI scans or something, which I think is really weird. I had no idea about that. <laughs> Me neither. That's so awesome. Okay. It's like funny because in the liner notes, like they like thank the hospital. <laughs> MRIs, I guess. Um, but yeah, like it's actually, I, I don't remember. Maybe it was like the US or UK version where like the heads are sideways. The US version, maybe where they're sideways and then in uk or somewhere else it's like um straight forward like you know they're looking straight forward which is kind of weird that's um, interesting i wonder why they did the alternate covers I yeah i'm ask. not really sure <laughs> tomorrow at work beep boop hello yeah. <laughs> actually i wanted that? to know if you've ever met them <laughs> yes yeah i have they're really kind like amazing human beings they actually have an album did i mention coming out yes yes the neon the neon we don't have to talk about right now but they are just the coolest people you'll ever meet like there's zero pretension to them so it's Mm -hmm. not only an honor to work with them because their music is amazing but um like unlike some of the examples i think we've been talking about they are just really nice down-to-earth people as well and you can kind of feel like that they would be cool. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. They're so really humble, which I like. I especially for, I think, two artists of such a success, like of that level of success. Like the fact that Andy still, I think, sometimes voices his um, insecurities about not sounding like Alison Moyet and like how deep and soulful her voice is, which is, was amazing too. But Andy's voice is amazing itself. And like, he's been doing this for 40 years and has sold wow. millions of records and all these chart numbers. And he's still, um, you know, a little shy about things. I find that really endearing and charming. Oh, I love his wow. voice. <laughs> Man, like, I feel, you know, he definitely has a, uh, his own kind of soul his voice and Mm -hmm. it just has this like really delicate emotion that i just really love gets me like all the time was it hard for you guys to pick a skiff because it was hard for me really yeah for me it was actually it was kind of like one that was obvious that wasn't my bag but everything else was pretty incredible Uh, and for me that song was joan i just felt like it was very like mor and like kind of unnecessary i don't even actually think that it was you know could they could have cut the album by one track in my view oh wow and, yeah. <laughs> how dare you <laughs> i feel like you just like called my mom ugly <laughs> i don't know why that one just didn't move me re-listening to this album for the first time in 30 years <laughs> Um, well, we all kind of agreed, I guess, in Gam, you know, like, uh, I, I picked, like, Siren Song and Maybe Home. They both kind of have, like, these weird choir backup vocals that I thought, you know, I don't know. But they were still kind of cool. I don't know. <laughs> so it was hard. <laughs> it is hard. I would say I would agree with both of your choices. And I swear to God, it's not just because I, like, want to agree because you're both adorable but (laughs) (laughs) I genuinely agreed with all your picks for the repeat skips and I feel like you don't have to like pick the I don't know b-side to be as your repeat because it was good like sometimes it's just the best song is the single so yeah Yeah, I think sometimes 
I'll speak for myself, like I feel very uh, kind of basic or boring to pick the obvious single, but in a lot of cases, especially on a really strong kind of pop release, you know, th- that is one of the stronger tracks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, if you also like had a lot of memories like uh, about it, it gives you a certain kind of feeling and that's that's how I usually pick it. It's like, how does this song make me feel, you know? And it's usually the more nostalgic ones are like the ones you listened to a lot back in the day because they were like the hit, you know. Mm-hmm. To take it back to the Alzheimer's comp, the the mm-hmm. there's a big thing about um, how music in studies that the, the part of your brain that processes music isn't relatively unaffected by the disease so that there'll be people that are at times even like almost nonverbal, but they'll respond to music or they'll um there's a hbo documentary about alzheimer's um and there's a, a patient in there that has like again nonverbal, but he's in a choir and when he sings like he automatically when he's with his group he just automatically was like hitting every note and knew every word but then when it was done was back to so it's interesting the nostalgia in these songs and I wonder how these songs will impact me when I'm older like am I gonna um you know, maybe I'll be nonverbal somewhere and love to hate you will come on and I'll get out and I'll pot a beret out of my wheelchair. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> maybe I won't. I don't know. I hope, though. I hope that I keep these songs with me forever. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that will happen. I think so, too. And I think, you know, it's just deep, deeply connected to our emotions. So I think, you know, music is magic in that way. Mm hmm. That's probably a good note to go out on, no? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Music is magic. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think you've said it all, really. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. This was so fun to catch up. Thank you oh, for having me. I really appreciate it. It was so much fun talking. We'll catch you next time on Mixtape Memories. Memories. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye now. <laughs> <laughs> It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.